This is Climate One. I'm Ariana Brocious. The clothing company Patagonia has become synonymous with outdoor adventure and sustainability, largely because of the unconventional approach of its founder, Yvonne Chouinard. I really believe that all of us should be buying less, but buying better. Over the years, the reluctant businessman has also prioritized philanthropy to grassroots environmental groups. And now he's given away the company entirely to fund climate and conservation, a move in contrast with how most billionaires approach capitalism. They've succeeded wildly under this current system. They think it needs to be tweaked so that we don't overheat ourselves rather than recreate it wholesale. A look back with the entrepreneur, philanthropist, and adventure icon, Yvonne Chouinard. That's up next on Climate One. The pioneering founder and owner of Patagonia is known for charting his own path through the wilderness and through business. Rather than pushing customers to buy new jackets and gear, Yvonne Chouinard's company helps people fix buttons and zippers and collects worn-out clothes for resale and recycling. In an industry not known for its social and environmental responsibility, the company is a leader in understanding the impacts of its operations on people and the planet and works hard to do no unnecessary harm. All that effort drives up costs. But until recently, the only shareholders were Yvonne Chouinard, his wife Melinda, and their two adult children. Now they've given the very profitable company, valued at $3 billion, away entirely to a specially designed trust and organization that will dedicate its profits to addressing climate change and preserving land. In light of that news, we're revisiting our 2016 interview with Yvonne Chouinard in front of a live audience at the Commonwealth Club of California. We'll talk more about the current state of climate philanthropy later in the show. For now, we'll hand the mic to Climate One host, Greg Dalton. Let's begin on an important evening in your life, 1956. It's your high school prom, and what are you doing? <laughs> I'm down at the LA River bottom down there, gigging frogs and catching crawdads. <laughs> So rather, everyone else is at the, at the dance, you're in the river chasing frogs. Yeah, I was never a dancer, actually. <laughs> well, in 1968, you took a trip that you say shaped your life. You drove to a 10,000-mile trip down the Pan American Highway. It was dirt then. So tell us about that trip and how it shaped your life. Well, uh, I, you know, I've been on a lot of different expeditions and trips, but uh, the longer they are, the more you you get something out of them. And uh, this was a six-month trip. And so we left Ventura, California with an old van. This was Doug Tompkins and myself and, and uh, some other folks. And we loaded the van up with surfboards and skis and climbing equipment, bought an old um, Bolex 16-millimeter camera, and took off surfing all the way down to Lima went to Chile and climbed volcanoes and skied down them. That's where I learned to ski. <laughs> um, crossed over the Andes and went over to, and climbed uh, Fitzroy, a real famous mountain that had been only climbed twice. And we did a new route on it. And we made a film on the whole thing. And, and that's when I fell in love with that country, the, the southern end of South America called Patagonia. And uh, it affected Doug Tompkins a lot, and myself. And, uh, and that's why I named the 
my clothing company, Patagonia, because it, I wanted to make clothing for those kind of conditions, you know, like Cape Horn and wild mountains and wild weather. And So you founded an outdoor gear company, you got into clothing, and at some point you realized that you were running a business, but you didn't want to be a businessman. Well, I, I never wanted to be a businessman. I, I was a craftsman, and I was a climber, and I just... Every time I'd go into the mountains, I'd have ideas on how to make the gear better. The gear was pretty crude in those days. It was all made in Europe. So I, I just got myself a forge and an anvil and a book on blacksmithing, and I taught myself how to blacksmith, and, and that led to making these pitons and, and, um, and eventually ice axes and and crampons and all the gear for mountain climbing and uh, and never did it thinking that it was a business it was uh, at first it was just making the stuff for myself and friends and then friends of friends and pretty soon I'm making two of these pitons an hour and selling them for a dollar and a half each well <laughs> not too not too profitable right <laughs> but uh uh, yeah, that's I, I kind of backdoored becoming a businessman because this is this is in the '60s, and you know businessmen were all greaseballs in the '60s. <laughs> you know, this is a counterculture that we were in, and we didn't respect business. In fact, they were the they were the enemy. And so, uh, you know, one day uh, later on, I kind of woke up and discovered, oh my God, I am a businessman. And that's when I decided I better find out what I'm doing and started reading a lot of books on, on business and, and basically trying to f create a business that we wanted to come to work in. All of us, I mean, it wasn't just me, but all of us were all dirtbags. <laughs> so that's what we did. We, and explain that term, dirtbags, has a particular meaning for people who... Uh, well, actually, that term dirtbag, now you hear it all the time, but it actually came from Yosemite. People who are out in nature a lot. Um, 1981, you had a near-death experience in an avalanche in China. One person died, others, you survived. Tell us about that. Um, yeah. I used to go on a lot of... I'm kind of a serial climber, you know? I'd spend two years just climbing cracks, I'd spent five years just climbing big walls like in Yosemite. I'd, I'd spent years and years uh, learning ice climbing, in fact, writing a book about it. And then I did a bunch of expedition climbing on, you know, in the Himalayas and Antarctica and places like that. And uh, one trip to Tibet, uh, there was four of us coming down from Camp 2 on this 25,000-foot peak. And we set off an avalanche, and we were roped up together, and we went over a 30-foot cliff. It was, we went about 1,500 feet, went over a 30-foot cliff, and the avalanche stopped, and we're trying to untangle ourselves from all the ropes and stuff, and we're thinking, oh, my God, we're alive. And, um, but the avalanche started again. And at that point, we knew that at just a few hundred feet below, there was a 300-foot cliff. So 
we knew we were dead. And we accepted the idea that we're dead. We're going to die. And the avalanche stopped 30 foot from the cliff. And one of the guys was, uh, had a broken neck, and he was dead. Another friend had a broken back. I had broken ribs and a concussion. I had no idea where I was. Um, and it kind of changed my life in that I've had a lot of close calls, near-death experiences, but always afterwards you go around sniffing the flowers and being really happy to be alive and everything. And, but after that, all of us were deeply depressed for several months afterwards. And it's, I've read stories about people that have kind of died and come back. Mm. And you resist coming back. And in fact, it's taught me that there's nothing to fear about death itself. It's it's pretty pleasant um, feeling. And since then, I've first of all, I I really scared the heck out of my family, and uh, I realized I don't want to do that again. I really cut back on that kind of climbing, but I also have an attitude that you know when my time comes, I'm going to go out pretty peacefully. You said that an adventure isn't an adventure until something goes wrong. Do you still believe that to be true? Yeah, I mean, every definition of adventure in the Webster's has risk, whether it's a financial adventure or whatever. And adventure travel, that's an oxymoron. <laughs> they make sure that you're not going to get into any trouble. <laughs> uh, Sign those release forms. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, and, uh, you know, if you really search out adventure, you, you have to purposely leave out some gear or, or you have to purposely <laughs> <laughs> stick your neck out. Uh, otherwise, you're not going to have an adventure. If you figure it out to the nth degree, it's not going to happen. And, and we, we searched out adventure when I was... When I was a kid, it always, we always dared it, you know, dared it to happen so How we could fight our way out of it. And, and, and you know, that's when you get uh, the most value out of the, the experience. Do you feel that about your own children having a venture, too? Uh, <laughs> of course not. <laughs> <laughs> I want them to be as safe as possible. <laughs> I don't want to hear about it. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, in, in fact, the first time my parents knew I was a climber, they were, this is 1964, they were watching television. And on the news program, uh, there's a helicopter coming by the, the North American Wall of El Capitan. And then it zooms in on these guys hanging from hammocks underneath this big overhang, 2,000 feet up, and one of them is their son. <laughs> they always thought when I said I was going climbing that I was going hiking. <laughs> <laughs> so what was it like when you got home when they found out about that? <laughs> they were aghast, that's for sure. Ten years after that avalanche in China, your company had a near-death experience. Why did that happen, and how did you turn it around? Well, um, we, we were growing our business 
in the normal ways. We were adding more wholesale accounts. We were building more retail stores. And the market wanted our products. And so we were growing 50% a year. And you know, you can't grow a business with 50% growth year after year on retained earnings. At some point, you're going to crash. And at the same time, there was a uh, recession. And the banks wouldn't lend us any money. We had bought inventory for another 50% growth. And as it turned out, we only had a 30% growth. Well, that's a huge difference. And we got into really deep financial trouble. I mean, so deep that I could hardly get out of it. My accountants uh, introduced me to the mafia, <laughs> who ironically wanted 28% interest. <laughs> Which is what you pay on your credit cards now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's mafia. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I finally got out of it by borrowing money from friends and friends of friends and stuff like that. But, but it also was a wake-up call that I was doing business just like everybody else. I was growing for the sake of growing and not thinking about what I was doing. And that forced us to sit down, all of us, in the company and ask ourselves, why are we in business? And in fact, we went, I took all the, the most important people in the company, we went down to Patagonia and we walked around in the wilderness and we sit down for three, four hours a day and talk about, okay, why are we in business? What are we trying to do? What are our values? And that's what uh, eventually became this book, Let My People Go Surfing, and it changed the whole way we did business. And what we did is create a business that we wanted to come to work in. And it's pretty different from a lot of other companies, I can tell you that. And it works. Lots of companies talk about their values. They have them posted by the water cooler, et cetera, but it's a different thing to live them. So how do you operationalize them? And do you, do you go back to them, you know, keep coming back to them? Well, for instance, our management, I mean, the name of my book is Let My People Go Surfing, because we have a policy that if your child is sick, go home, take care of them, uh, no matter what. And I don't care when you work, as long as the job gets done. And if the surf comes up, drop everything, go surfing. You know, we, none of us liked authority. We really disliked authority. And none of us wanted to tell other people what to do. So. Our management system is kind of like an ant colony. You know, an ant colony doesn't have any bosses. The queen just lays there and lays eggs. Um, there's no bosses in ant colony, but every single ant knows what his job is and gets it done. And they communicate by touching feelers, and that's about it. And so in, in Native American societies, the chief was not the richest guy in the tribe. He was the best orator because the tribe made decisions on consensus. Now that's the opposite of how our government works. Our government works on compromise, which never solves the problem. It cuts the baby in half, so to speak. And to build consensus, you have to have leaders that can convince everybody that we're going to go in this direction. And it's kind of like a SEAL team. If one guy in the SEAL team says, oh, I don't know about this thing we're going on, I think I'm going to just hold back a little bit. It doesn't work. Every single person in that SEAL team 
has to agree this is what he's going to do. And if the leader gets killed, the next guy takes over. If he gets killed, the next guy takes over. It's, it's leaderless, really. And that's our management style. So I hire uh, very independent, very self-motivated people who believe in what we're trying to do, and I leave them alone. And in fact, I had a psychologist came one time and studied our company and said, gee, I got to tell you, um, we did psychological profiles on a lot of people, you know, to see if, make sure the right-brained people were working on right-brained jobs and stuff like that. But I said, I got to tell you, your people are so, the most independent people I've ever seen in a company. In fact, they're really unemployable anywhere else. <laughs> 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 it's a good thing, good thing you gave him jobs. <laughs> Coming up, the need for more philanthropy to boost climate action. This is a hundred different pushes in a hundred different directions trying to reduce emissions. And thus philanthropy in all kinds of spheres can be impactful when targeted at areas that haven't seen attention before. That's up next when Climate One continues. We're listening back to our 2016 conversation with Yvonne Chouinard in front of a live audience at the Commonwealth Club. Climate One host Greg Dalton asks Chouinard which was a greater accomplishment, climbing El Capitan, a 3,000-foot sheer rock face in Yosemite, or founding three global companies. It's only dawned on me recently the effect that my companies have had in, in society. It's, I never really thought much about it, but you know, we're a relatively small company, but we have incredible amount of social power around the world. And it's, it's only dawned on me recently that, um, that we have this, and there, therefore we probably have the responsibility to use that power and not just uh, hire other people to do the right thing and stuff. So it's changed the way our company operates. Instead of just giving money away to a bunch of NGOs, which we still do, but uh, we're doing a lot more stuff ourselves. Yeah, I'm pretty stoked about, you know, the climbs I did on El Cap. You know, I've <laughs> they were really important for me at that time. It, it built the character that I am now, probably, but uh, I'm, I'm starting to be pretty proud of the company, too. A lot of moral authority, deep following that Patagonia has. And there was one time where you were approached by Walmart, which is a huge corporation, villainized by a lot of probably Patagonia uh, followers. So tell us about Dancing with the Devil. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, a few years back, the Walton family told the CEO that they wanted a green Walmart, basically make it more environmentally responsible. Well, the CEO had no idea what that meant. So he sent a team of, I think, seven or nine people to Ventura to talk to us about what, what it means. And also, they realized that they couldn't do what they wanted to do without uh, getting other large companies all together doing the same thing so that there was a level playing field. And So they sent a letter out to oh, I don't know, a lot of the largest companies in America to come to New York to talk about uh, 
greening their companies and doing a, a new way of doing business and stuff, and nobody came. So they got a hold of us and said, will you co-sign a letter, Walmart and Patagonia, <laughs> inviting these people to New York, and everybody came. <laughs> so we started an, an apparel, sustainable apparel coalition, which uh, is, is kind of bogged down in bureaucracy, but the ultimate goal is to basically give information to consumers so that they know what they're buying, so that a young person buying a pair of jeans can look at five pairs of jeans on a table and, and zap the, the barcode, and it'll tell them how each jean is made, and, and it'll have a grade as to which one is made more responsibly. That's the ultimate goal. Do you think that uh, sustainable purchasing, green living, is that legitimate? Can corporations be a force for the sustainability changes that you want to see, or is that just greenwashing? Well, it has to be forced by the consumer. I don't think corporations are going to change on their own. Public corporations, I mean, Robert Reich wrote a book on capitalism. He devotes two chapters to why public corporations can never be responsible. But, you know, all of us here are no longer citizens. We're consumers. That's our brand now. And, but you know what? Uh, I used to think that maybe designers had the most power because they decide what color car you're going to drive, you, you know, what clothes you're going to wear and stuff. But you can just say no. That's pretty powerful. And so we have the power. And corporations will only change when we force them to. And it's the same thing with government. I'll tell you a little story about mountain guiding. There's two types of mountain guiding. One is democratic, where you're guiding somebody up to Grand Teton, which is a pretty safe mountain. And, and uh, the client starts freaking out. So you pull out your harmonica, and you play your harmonica a little bit. You calm them down. And, and you kind of, you know, take your time and, and you get up it. Very, um, very effective way to guide on a, on a non-difficult mountain. Let's say you're guiding on the Matterhorn and, you know, you're 60 years old, a guide, and you've got a family. And, and uh, you know, remember the client is always out to kill you. <laughs> and so... On, that, on a mountain like that, it's rotten rock, it's, it's thunderstorms every afternoon, and the, the client freaks out, the guide screams at him, pounds on him, calls him names, tugs the rope, and gets him to the top. So what happens is the client is more afraid of the guide than the mountain. <laughs> and that's basically how we have to treat our government. True or false, you could claim residency in Wyoming, which has no state income tax. Instead, you choose to pay taxes in California, a high-tax state. No, I believe in taxes. Uh, I'm happy to pay my taxes. And when I see corporations like General Electric, who paid no income taxes a few years ago, um, 
I think it's pretty sad. It's, in fact, I believe in taxes so much that I, we tax ourselves. Our 1% for the planet taxes, we tax ourselves. And, and the best part is we decide where it goes. You recently converted Patagonia into a B corporation, which is a new type of corporate structure that allows companies to seek social and financial returns without worrying about getting sued by investors for not maximizing uh, profit at the expense of all else. So the question is, you did that to ensure that your two children who will inherit the company or other future owners won't change the company's values. Yeah, actually, they don't inherit the company, but they, it goes into a trust. And uh, the law, the way it is, forces every company to become public. You know, if the trust, if, if myself and my kids die, the trust has eight years to divest 80% of the stock because the law doesn't want you to own more than 20% of stock in any one company, a foundation law. And it also forces you to sell to the highest bidder. You can't just sell your company to a close friend for $2. So... The highest bidder for us, of course, would be going public. Well, being, being a B Corp, uh, you don't have to do that. You can establish what your values are, and, um, and you put that in your corporate charter, and um, you can avoid that. So um, hopefully uh, the company can keep going with the same values for a long, long time. Earlier this year, Chenard made headlines by choosing to divest of his company entirely, transferring ownership to a new nonprofit organization that will dedicate its roughly $100 million of annual profits to addressing climate change and preserving undeveloped land. Michael Cavate is a staff writer at Inside Philanthropy who covers climate giving. I asked him how big a deal this is in terms of climate philanthropy. It's important that we keep seeing gifts of this size. Climate philanthropy has seen a large influx, and this is both large by certain comparisons, and you know it's it's dwarfed by things like Jeff Bezos spending a billion a year and other major gifts like that. Um, but it's up there, and one very important thing is that the history of Patagonia is that it's supported very small groups, which have traditionally struggled to get funding from some of these larger big donors. And that could really help them rise along with some of the biggest groups in the, in the world. Whereas right now, there's a fear that an influx of funding is going to make the biggest bigger and leave the small behind and kind of reinforce a disparity that's existed from the beginning of uh, climate philanthropy. So essentially, the money that comes into this space now, a lot of it goes into what are called big greens or big big groups as opposed to grassroots ones that are more focused on direct action. And Patagonia is a outlier in the way they've been funding people. Yeah, historically, they've funded a lot of small groups, often focused on direct action, uh, very grassroots organizations. And historically, you know, you talk to anyone in the climate movement and they most will acknowledge that everybody has a role to play. This is all hands on deck time for climate and the environment. And yet the money has overwhelmingly flowed to some of the largest organizations. There's been exceptions. Bezos, for instance, has put a, a large chunk of his U.S. dollars towards climate 
justice groups, which is great. But to have a Patagonia where virtually all the money goes to such groups is a good counterpoint to uh, many funders who are sending virtually all their money to some of the largest and most well-resourced, such as John Doe or the venture capitalist's gift of $1 billion to Stanford, both something we need in terms of science and technology development, but also making a very rich institution that much richer. Right. So in terms of the, the monetary figure here, how far does $100 million really go in the climate space and how impactful can that money be? You know, there's roughly was $1.9 billion in climate. So $100 million is both a lot and we need a whole lot more. This sector still only accounts for 2% of global philanthropy. It's dangerous to think any, you know, a large sum is is nothing. Um, it's also important to recognize that no single gift, no matter how big it is, is tipping point. But it's also just important for uh, for this example to spur more people to give because we're still a long way away from uh, philanthropy spending enough to really uh, make a difference in this area. Why don't more billionaire philanthropists prioritize climate? Climate philanthropy as a whole is relatively new. I think just as we've seen the world fail to spend or react to the threat of climate change, philanthropy has been the same. There's been some notable foundations that have come in. There's been some families uh, who have started early. But on the whole, climate philanthropy is playing, playing catch up just as the world and you know our governments are. It has also probably struggled from the lack of a, a personal connection. Ultimately, you look at a lot of billionaires giving and it goes to their universities. It goes to big medical institutions where maybe they had treatment. There's also a role of you know getting your name on a building, um, getting your, your name on a wing. And that you don't see that same factor necessarily in climate. We recently had on the show Anand Giriharadas, and he was saying, in reflecting on this change that Yvonne Chouinard made in his legacy, that um, by investing both in these grassroots groups and then also in maybe some political action, that he, in a departure from sort of standard philanthropy, which can help in a way, as you just said, aggrandize someone's own image and kind of even bolster their own power through giving, that this could then chip away at that power because it's possibly funding policy changes, right? If it's political spending or something. I'm curious what you think about that idea. Yeah. Traditionally, philanthropy by the wealthy has gone to kind of big picture solutions that work within the existing framework, you know, whether it's the drive electric campaign of climate works and many billions of dollars going into that, uh, many from major donors, uh, things that want to take the world as we know it today and say, pull out combustion engines and put in electric engines, right? And so there's an element that the climate justice, the racial justice groups working on climate, those organizations are pushing for a deeper, wider change. And you are unlikely to get uh, many billionaires who are eager. They've they've succeeded wildly under this current system. They think it needs to be tweaked so that we don't overheat ourselves, rather than you know recreated wholesale. And thus, they're not going to fund the groups that see this as a, a chance to remake our world in a way that 
you know, a certain amount of science and study suggests is absolutely necessary to fully address uh, climate change. What do you think would make a big donor shift their focus to climate? We've seen a couple of these gifts happen. Are there trends or motivators that you're seeing in common among some of these big donors? With a lot of the big donors lately, it seems that their children are really pushing them. Steve and Connie Ballmer uh, of Microsoft Wealth recently started the climate program with their son in the lead. I think the Waltons' younger generation has also helped di- redirect their environmental program more and more towards climate. So we're seeing the youngest generation of these billionaire families say, hey, we can't ignore this. You know, this is our future. Uh, this is what we need to do in order to have a life that's worth living, you know, not just for us, but the rest of the world. What trends do you see in the climate philanthropy space in general? Ultimately, there's a lot of funders entering, whether it's the Balmers or Mark Zuckerberg. Many billionaires are starting to spend on climate. And maybe there's some degree of a copycat effect. These people all run in the similar circles at this point, I think, If you're a philanthropist and you're spending a lot of money, you're getting pushed by your peers and groups like uh, Climate Leadership Initiative, which is behind a lot of these new programs, are pushing them to start to spend. So one of the biggest trends is just an influx of a whole lot more money. And at the same time, there's whole areas that have not been funded at all commensurate with their need. For instance, a... I'll say mere multimillionaire gave some 25 million to decarbonizing concrete. Industry as a whole accounts for 24% of greenhouse gas emissions, according to the IPCC. Concrete accounts for some smaller portion of that. But industry itself has gotten so little from climate philanthropy that this recent donation of 20 million basically was the largest single donation to reducing emissions from industry in the history of of climate giving. And so that demonstrates how a number that might not make headlines for us, like a Patagonia gift, is still hugely impactful. And it, it illustrates how these are not a silver bullet issue. This is 100 different pushes in 100 different directions trying to reduce emissions. And Thus, philanthropy in all kinds of spheres can be impactful when targeted at areas that haven't seen attention before. What kind of climate philanthropy do you personally think is most important? What I would like to see from the next Yvonne Chouinard is taking their fortune and instead of choosing where to put it, finding a mechanism to appoint a group of people who are most impacted by climate change and have them make the decisions. That's what the ultimate form of philanthropy, I believe, because if you're still making the calls, if you still have the power, that is how philanthropies worked for hundreds of years. But to give over that power is the next wave of philanthropy. Michael Cavate is a staff writer with Inside Philanthropy. Michael, thank you for joining us on Climate One. It's been my pleasure. Coming up, Yvonne Chouinard reflects on the journey to making more sustainable clothing. I never thought about how it was made, and that's, that was a wake-up call, and that's when we decided to start asking a lot of questions about what we were doing. 
We'll be right back. We're revisiting Greg Dalton's 2016 conversation with Yvonne Chouinard, founder and owner of Patagonia. The clothing company is known for sustainability, but Chouinard says it's been an evolution. Part of it started when they opened a retail store in Boston. We got an old building and we retrofitted it, opened it up, brought in all the clothing, and within three days, uh, my employees were complaining they were getting headaches. And so I brought in a chemical engineer and he's, he said, you're... Uh, the problem is your ventilation system is recycling the same air and you're poisoning your employees. I said, well, wait a minute, where's the poison coming from? He said, well, it's all on all the, the cotton clothing that you've, this is before we did organic cotton. It's on all the cotton clothing that you have. It's, it's formaldehyde. And formaldehyde is used to have stay-pressed clothing, no wrinkling. It, uh, helps the shrinkage and stuff. And uh, it's super toxic stuff. And then when I heard that, I said, oh my God, I had no idea because, you know, we just ordered cloth from a salesman. He'd come by with a big book on, and say, well, give me 10,000 yards of this and 5,000 yards of this. And I never thought about how it was made. And that's, that was a wake up call. And that's when we decided to start asking a lot of questions about what we were doing. And, you know, we first when we asked, well, okay, so what, what's happening with cotton? And uh, so we went around and found out, we did trips to the Central Valley and we visited cotton farms and we got sprayed by crop dusters and found out the cancer rates 10 times above normal in San Joaquin Valley there. And uh, I said, I don't want to be in business if I got to use this stuff. So thankfully, I learned about organically grown cotton, and then we switched over. And then, uh, you know, then we started asking more questions like, well, how about dyes? What happens? Are dyes toxic? I didn't know. I always just bought cloth already dyed. And so it was a long, long process in cleaning up my entire supply chain all the way to the point where I know um, where, where now I have to go to our cotton farmers and say it's not enough for you to grow organic cotton. Now you have to grow it regeneratively, which means the difference between organic and regenerative farming is regenerative builds topsoil and captures carbon. That's way beyond organic. So anyway, it led to us cleaning up our supply chain as, as much as we possibly could. Every time we learned we were doing something wrong, we changed it. You're passionate now about food. You formed Patagonia Provision. So tell us about your passion for food and how you see food as a new avenue for the social change and concerns about climate change that you, you're talking about. Well, agriculture is the biggest uh, villain in, in climate change. And therefore, it's probably the best opportunity we have to do something about climate change. So growing cotton organically um, doesn't do the world any good. It's still, you know, it pull, yeah, for a brief period of time, it pulls, 
carbon out of the air, sticks it in the ground, and then they plow it and it releases carbon again. So it's an endless process. And it loses topsoil. You know, the organic foods that you buy in uh, your supermarket, most of it comes from Mexico, grown in Baja, California, out in the desert out there, and is being forced to grow there. It uses fossil water that's millions of years old. It's probably 20 years left of the water there, never be replenished again. And, you know, they pay the workers eight bucks a day and lock them up at night so they don't escape. But it's organic. And uh, so I said, I don't want to just, you know, our, our mission statement, the third part of our, the second part of our mission statement is cause no unnecessary harm. Well, I want to go beyond that. I want to do good. And so if I can get our people to grow cotton regeneratively, in other words, no more plowing, using cover crops, capturing carbon and leaving it in the soil, then it not only causes less harm, but it actually does good. And I think there's a lot of books out now on uh, the idea of capturing that carbon that we're releasing through agriculture, through different grazing practices. And it's pretty exciting. It's, it's the most hopeful thing I've heard. In fact, we're partners in a bison farm in South Dakota. And um, we, we poked 250 holes in this pasture out there, this pasture land, to see how much carbon we're capturing compared to the neighbor's property, which has cows. Well, the bison property captures nine tons more per hectare, so 2.2 acres, nine tons more a year um, than the neighbor. And why is that? Well, you know, the bison have little sharp hooves. Every time they walk, they make little divots. When it rains, water collects in the divots. When a cow walks, it's got these big flat feet, stomps the ground down. When it rains, the water runs off. And those little divots, they crush the um, grass and, and sticks it down into the ground. And so it's making its own cover crop and its own compost. And bison roam around. They're never in one spot like cows are. So it's a much better animal to put on, that, on the plains than a cow is. So uh, the University of California, Berkeley, and, and Santa Barbara have done studies on grassland. And uh, they figure that it, it, if we change agriculture around the world, we could capture more than all the carbon that we're releasing into the air from everything that we do. But that means getting away from this industrial uh, agriculture, which is John Jevons at uh, Ecology Action up here in Willits. He figures we have 20 to 30 years more of topsoil. And before we run out of topsoil, we're going to run out of water. And regenerative agriculture, organic agriculture, uses 20% of the water of regular agriculture. And you can produce more food. So I'm really excited about that. And I, you know, I mean, the reason I was in the clothing business, I thought I could change the industry and get 
other clothing companies to, by doing the right thing, proving that it's good business and that they would follow what we're doing. And you know what? It's not going to happen. I've, I've watched all these companies pick the low-hanging fruit and then back off. And so anyway, I am. Um, <laughs> yeah, they're not. They're I'm not pretty excited about food because I think we need a revolution in society. It's not going to come from any other way except from agriculture. I really believe that. People really care about, they don't care about how cotton is grown in Turkey, but they really care about food. And so I want to be part of that revolution. Let's go to our audience question for Yvonne Chenard. One of the big criticisms that I hear about Patagonia is it's called Patagucci by a lot of the dirtbags in Yosemite. And I'm curious, I'm sure you've heard it as well, what is your response to a lot of the people that you would have hung out with that have this criticism against the company you run? Well, you know, it's the same criticism with uh, organic foods. People, a lot of people say they can't afford organic food because it's more expensive. And in fact, when you buy a hamburger at McDonald's, it's cheaper than if you bought all those ingredients separately. Uh, and that's because, you know, food is a commodity that's highly s subsidized. And uh, the efforts that we put into making our clothing is going to make them cost more than what you can buy at Costco or Walmart. But it is the same price as North Face or Marmot or any of those companies. And, and, you know, I've had people say, well, why don't you make a less expensive range of clothes so that everybody can wear it? I can't do it. Organic cotton costs three times more per pound than regular cotton. Uh, regular GMO, you know, all non-organic cotton is all GMO cotton. So I can't do it. I, number one, I really believe that all of us should be buying less, but buying better. My, my father was a tradesman, and he taught me that when you buy a tool, you buy the absolute best tool you can get and keep it for the rest of your life. And that's much better than buying a cheap tool, having a break, buying another one, have that break. And so that's just the way it is. Let's go to our next question here for Yvonne Chenard. Hi, this is a fishing question. I was curious in that New Yorker article that was written about you at the end there was a great photo, or maybe it was at the beginning, of you working um, with some young native kids and teaching them how to fish. I'm just interested in your motivation and what you're doing with that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I went to the Crow Indian Reservation, which is one of the toughest reservations around. I mean, high suicide rate with teens. And the crows are not fishermen. They're buffalo hunters. But they live on the Bighorn River, which is one of the best rivers in America, and they're watching boat after boat after boat going down of, of uh, rich white guys and uh, being guided by uh, non-Indians. And um, I thought, well, you know, I got to get these, these kids fishing and, and teach them a little bit about nature and stuff, and not in a way that that you'd normally teach them to fly fish, which is a eight, give them an $800 rod and a $500 reel and pay a guide $500 to take them down the river. So I went out there, I cut a branch off a tree, I put a horsehair line on it, twisted horsehair line and a leader, 
And I showed him how easy it is to fly fish. And uh, so then I gave him these, uh, it's called a tenkara pole. It's a pole that without a reel and just has a line on the end. And so I wanted them to be able to relate to how simple it is to learn something like that. And in fact, I got every single one of them to catch fish. And I let them kill it, kill the fish. I mean, you know, they don't play with their food like we do. <laughs> so uh, there was one kid who didn't catch a fish towards the end of the day, and he was nine years old, and, and uh, there was no reason he didn't catch a fish. So I took him out on a riffle, and he caught a 15-inch rainbow. So we killed that. And then he caught a 16-inch brown. We killed that. And then he caught a 17-inch rainbow, a big, beautiful fish. And he said, I'm going to let this one go. I said, how many are in your family? He said, five. But I'm letting this one go. I said, well, by gosh, you're not only a great fisherman, but an environmentalist. And we put his fish on a, on a little branch, and we, he walked back to the car where everybody was waiting and had a smile from ear to ear. And uh, it was life-changing for those kids. I heard later on that their parents said, the kids couldn't sleep at night. They were so excited. <laughs> and so I've been going around teaching uh, kids and women fly fishing. I won't teach guys. They, it's too frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> we're talking with Yvonne Chenard at Climate One from the Commonwealth Club. We have a next audience question over there. Hi. Um, I've been adventuring most of my life, and I find the clothing I wear almost becomes intertwined with the story. And I thought one of the most... Uh, touching things that you all did a few years ago was open up the send it back to us, we'll repair it. I've been to your Reno shop, had many pieces repaired, and they still have life. If you could just speak to that innovation and what that has meant to your company. Yeah, that kind of started, we did an ad in, in uh, the New York Times on Black Friday that said, don't buy this jacket. And there's this photo of this jacket. And it said, don't buy this jacket without thinking twice. Do you really need it? Are you just bored? Uh, and if, so, you know, don't, just don't be a kind of unconscious consumer. And, of course, we ended up selling more jackets than we ever did. <laughs> but that wasn't the purpose. And what it did is it forced us, first of all, to put in the largest, we, we made our own commitment. If they if they made a commitment to think twice about purchasing, we were going to back it up with our own commitment, which was guaranteeing that jacket for life, repairing it when it needed repair, uh, helping people find another owner for that jacket, and finally, when it's absolutely shredded and can't be used at all, we'll recycle it into more clothing. And so to do that, we had to build the largest garment repair facility in North America. And we have a, a van going around to colleges and stuff showing people how to repair clothes and repairing people's clothing. We produced a bunch of videos on how to, re, how to sew a button on and how to so people can repair their own stuff. Because that's the best thing you can do is, is to buy the very best thing you can and try to keep it going as long as possible. And so we're helping people do that. Let's go to our next audience question, which is in the back. Yes. 
Thank you very much for being here. Um, earlier, you touched on a, a point that I, I would love to get back to, which was the moment you were on El Cap and your parents saw the image of you there. And then Greg asked, what do you think about your own kids doing that type of thing? And I think it gets to this um, dilemma, which is our, our willingness to take on risk and adventure ourselves, but then bringing up a new generation of people and encouraging them to, no, stay home, do your homework don't necessarily do that same sort of adventure. So what is your advice to teenagers these days? Oh, gee, teenagers. <laughs> <laughs> well, my advice to parents is to stick your kids' necks out. Get them in nature, and, you know, when my kids were little toddlers and, and they'd climb up to the fireplace, and I'd let them do it. Especially my daughter, you know, it's, it's really a lot of parents will let the boy climb up, but they won't let the daughter. And, you know, they get close to the fireplace. I let them get close enough the first time so that they, it hurt. <laughs> then I didn't have to worry about them after that. I really believe in, in we got to get our kids out in nature because it's, you know, we have a child care center for our kids, and now we're worried about, I've got my grandkids in there, and my daughter does not want to send them to a public school where they hand them a computer on their first day of school. So, you know, we may have to expand our child care center to include a, a nature uh, school uh, where they're just out in nature every day. And I think that's far more important than getting them hooked on electronics and which destroys their creativity completely and and has you know they won't have any love for the planet at all Yvonne okay. Chenard is the founder and owner of Patagonia and author of the new and updated memoir let my people go surfing the education of a reluctant businessman I'm Greg Dalton our last question comes from Facebook Brandon Pierce asks how do you cultivate a durable sense of hope both as an activist and as an entrepreneur well <laughs> I don't, I don't know if it's hope. I, I, it's just like it's accepting your death. I've accepted that everything changes. I may not be trout fishing in Montana in the future. I may be fishing for walleye and smallmouth bass. And that's a big change, but that, that just may be. But you know what? I'm going to do what I can for this. This global warming is the overlying thing that that is really... It's the only problem that we really have. It's, it, it's the biggest thing. It, it, it's a cause of everything else that's going on in the world. And I'm going to do what I can uh, with the resources that I have, which is my company, and, and some private philanthropy. And uh, I'm going to sleep at night, knowing that I'm, hopefully I'm part, a little part of the solution rather than part of the problem. Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency. In the interest of full disclosure, Climate One receives support from Climate Works. Talking about climate can be hard, and it's critical to address the transitions we need to make in all parts of society. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or a review if you're listening on Apple. You can also help by sending a link to this episode to a friend. Greg Dalton is our host and executive producer. Brad Marshland is our senior producer. Our managing director is Jenny Park. Our producers and audio editors are Austin Colon and me, Ariana Brocious. Megan Basilia is our production manager. 
Our team also includes consulting producer Sarah Catherine Coxon. Our theme music was composed by George Young and arranged by Matt Wilcox. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. Thanks for listening.